Well, as I have said many, many, many times, I think that the local church should be the absolute best place for us to explore our curiosities about God and faith. Uh, the local church ought to be the best place where we can have conversations about our curiosities and conversations about our doubts about things related to God and faith. And one of the best ways to explore our curiosities and one of the best ways to talk about our doubts is by asking questions. And, and that's why we're doing this series because progress often begins with a question. And when we ask questions, it puts us in the direction of discovering what is true and what is true ultimately always sets us free. And so we're going to look at another question because we're in the third installment of this series. And if you happen to be a guest of ours, you're watching online for the first time, uh, you can go back and you can check out the first two weeks free of charge. And we've talked about two very different things so far. But today, uh, I feel like it's a question that we can all relate to, uh, whether in our present moment or we could have once upon a time and maybe even sometime in the future, we'll be able to relate to it again. So here's today's question. Is there an unforgivable sin? If not, if God has forgiven me, why do I still feel guilty? How can I feel forgiven if I truly am? Uh, now, I thought that this was a great question. Uh, this is a question that comes up a lot among Jesus followers, among Christians, among people of faith. And, and, and this is a question that I thought, yeah, we absolutely should talk about this. We should absolutely do this because I think that every person of faith, at least on some level, can relate to this particular question. Uh, we can relate to how that question feels emotionally because once upon a time, uh, we felt uh, this particular way emotionally. Uh, at its core, this particular question is a theological question, most like every other question, but the implications of this question, they're relational, they're spiritual, and maybe more than anything else, uh, they're emotional. And, and so how we answer this particular question uh, it, it's got a lot to do with our spiritual life. It's got a lot to do with our emotional health. It's got a lot to do with how healthy our relationships are with other people, how healthy our relationship may be with ourselves. So that's what we're going to talk about. It's really three different questions, but, but really, you know, you put them together and I think it forms one cohesive question. And I think the best way to start uh, the conversation about this particular question is to just start thinking about sin. Not sinning, but let's just think about sin for a moment because at the heart of this question uh, is God and the issue of sin. Uh, in this question, there's the idea of God and how God sees us and how God sees us when we sin or once upon a time when we really sinned. And so to think about this question, not only do we have to think about God, but we also have to think about sin. So let me give you some facts about sin that all of us should just be clear on, okay? Here's some facts about sin. Number one. Everyone is a sinner. That means you, that means me, that means we. That every single one of us, there's never a person that you will ever stand eyeball to eyeball with that is not a sinner. There is not a mirror that you will ever look into that you don't see a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Every single one of us. Now, the New Testament couldn't be more clear on this, that there are none good, no, not one that everyone has fallen short of the glory or the standard of God. So we're all sinners. So here's what I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do because some of you, you've not been this honest in a long time. I want us all to just confess out loud in just a moment that I am a sinner, okay? You got that? I am a sinner. You ready? On three, one, 
two, three. I am a sinner. Like I said, it's been a long time since some of you have even admitted that. It's been a long time since some of you even thought about that in context uh, of your own personal life. Every single one of us, we are sinners. That means that all of us have stories that we wish that we couldn't tell. You have stories and I have stories that I wish and you wish that we couldn't tell. Some of those are you know, mess-ups and screw-ups and sins that are relational in context. Some of them are sexual. Some of them are financial. Uh, some of them, you know, we abused a substance once upon a time. And, and you know, we've all got stories that we, we wish were not part of our story. But yet we have those stories and we can tell those stories. And, and you know what you call when you have a story that you wish you couldn't tell but you can tell? That's what we call regret. Every single one of us we have regret because every single one of us, we are sinners. And as sinners, we have sin. And sin always turns into regret. So we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's standard. That's a fact. You, me, everyone. Inside the church, outside of the church, everyone is a sinner. All right? Second thing, second fact about sin. Sin doesn't come in sizes. Sin doesn't come in sizes. That means there's no such thing as a big sin or a little sin or mid-sized sin. Uh, and, and because there's no sizes when it relates to sin, there's no hierarchy among sins. That means that you can't make a list of really big deal sins and less of a deal sins. You, you can't make a list uh, of sins that are just really, 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 really nasty sins and, and sins that are, are not so nasty. There's no hierarchy among sins. There's no big sin, there's no little sins, just sins. And because there's no hierarchy among sins, that means there can be no hierarchy among sinners. That means that there's no one sinner who's better than another sinner because we are all sinners. We all have sin. There's no hierarchy among sins, so there can be no hierarchy among sinners. Now, when you and I start believing that some sins are worse than others or some sins are bigger than others, let me tell you what always happens. When we believe that some sins are bigger than others, we eventually begin to think that we are better than certain other groups of people. That's what happens every single time. If you think certain sins are bigger than others, you will begin to think that you're better than others. Not everybody, but a certain group, a certain few, one or two, him or her, you know, somebody in your family, somebody that you work with, someone you go to church with. Whenever you and I start thinking in terms of, hey, that's a big sin, but my sin, my sin's not so big, then we start feeling as though we are better than everybody else. And that's what frustrated Jesus. When Jesus had his earthly ministry going on, Jesus was frustrated with the religious establishment because they actually believed that they were better than everybody else. But the religious establishment, like every other establishment, it was composed of sinners. The religious establishment, it was full of sinners. There were sinners on the outside of the establishment. There were sinners on the inside of the establishment. But the thing that so frustrated Jesus, the thing that turned Jesus' stomach was this, that the religious establishment behaved in such a way that they thought that they were better than everybody else, whether because they had a hierarchy of sins in mind or they just neglected to think of themselves as sinners. They thought of everybody else as sinners. And so they began to feel as though they were better than everybody else. They loved to talk about everybody else's sin, but not their own sin. That's why Jesus said, hey, hey, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, before you start trying to get the itty bitty speck out of somebody else's eye, why don't you try to get the two by four that's in your eye out first? 
Jesus would get so frustrated about this. And this is what's interesting about Jesus and just take this and or, you know, do whatever you want to with it. But the thing that's so amusing about Jesus, he was friends with the unrighteous, but he was absolutely frustrated and offended by, and his stomach was turned at the thought of the self-righteous. Jesus, he, he could hang out with the unrighteous all day long, but you put him in the company of the self-righteous and Jesus, he, he would just have a fit. Jesus would go off and he would say, hey, you know what you are, you self-righteous people, because you think there's big sinners and little sinners and big sin and little sin. Let me tell you about you. You're like a really nice piece of china. You're like a cup. It's been cleaned on the outside. And from a distance, everybody says, look at that pretty clean cup. But then when you get close enough to know that cup and look inside that cup, it's full of just dirt. He said, that, that's how you kind of are. Your self-righteousness. He says, you're like a tomb that's been decorated. But hey, don't forget, even though the tomb is pretty, it's still a grave that's full of dead men's bones. And, and so Jesus would get so frustrated with this type of thinking. Now, I want you to think about this, and then we're going to move on. But this is important that we understand this. If we don't understand these things, then we'll never be able to get to the heart of what that person or persons, what they were actually asking with this particular question. God stops measuring sinners at fallen short. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. God stops measuring there. We like to keep on measuring. We like to think that some people, they felt a little bit closer to the glory of God, a little bit closer to the standard of God than somebody else. God stopped measuring at you fell short and I fell short. So if God stopped measuring there, then so should we. Everyone's a sinner, and sin doesn't come in sizes. Here's the third thing you need to remember about sin. You can't sin without harming yourself and those around you. I mean, you, you could be the best sinner, the most skilled sinner, you know, that there is. But, but you can't sin in such a way that it doesn't harm you and it doesn't harm those around you. No matter how private you think it is, no matter how isolated you feel like your sin may be, no matter how much sense your sin may make to you or how victimized you feel by your sin, it doesn't matter. You can't sin and I can't sin without harming myself and without harming others because that's just how sin works. Sin steals, it kills, it destroys. Sin always, whenever sin exists, it will harm you, it will end up harming those around you. And that's precisely why God hates sin. It's because of what it does to the people that he loves. He understands that sin promises pleasure but ultimately leaves us with pain. That sin promises and gives to us what we want in the moment, but it robs from us what we ultimately want tomorrow. That's the nature of sin. Sin is deadly. Sin is devastating. And you can't sin, and I can't sin, without harming myself and without harming yourself and all the people around us. It's just a fact of sin. And then here's the fourth one. There is no sin God isn't capable of forgiving or willing to forgive. This is important. I mean, this just keeps on adding on top of the other. There's not a single sin. Now, do your best to come up with one. I, I mean, think, you know, go to your hierarchy of lists, you know, of sins, the really bad ones that you've grown up with or that you've heard all of your life that it's really hard for you to untangle that way of thinking. Think of any sin that you want to think of. Make up a sin. And there's not a sin that God is not capable of forgiving or willing to forgive. That means that there's no place that we can go that God will not welcome us back from. That there's not anything that you can do, there's not anything that I can do that God doesn't offer forgiveness for. That's a big deal. 
Now, this is stuff that we've heard all of our lives if we've been in the church. But if you're new to the church and you're new to faith, this may be fresh to you. And if it's fresh to you, you still feel this. But some of us, we've been in this thing so long, we don't feel this anymore. We don't think about the fact that Jesus didn't die for just some sins, but Jesus died for all sins. Jesus died for every sinner and Jesus died for all the sins of every sinner. That's a big deal. That's a big thought. I mean, we ought to feel that, that Jesus died for every sinner and Jesus died for every sin that every sinner would ever commit. That means every sin you would ever commit, every sin that I would ever commit, Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died for every sinner. So if that's true, here's what that means. Not one of your sins is greater than another sin. And none of your sins are greater than God's grace. That's why we call the gospel good news. Because that's the good news of the message of Jesus. That's the good news of the new covenant. That's the good news of the New Testament. That not one of your sins is greater than another. Go back over, rehearse your life. Think about all the things you did wrong, all the missteps, all the screw-ups, all the mess-ups, all the sin. And just think about it for a moment. Not one of those sins is greater than another sin. Now, the consequences may have played out differently. The emotional impact may have played out differently. How people responded to it, it may have played out differently. But not one sin is greater than another one of your sins. And none of your sins are greater than God's grace. That means that when our sins come up against God's grace, God's grace wins every single time. Every single time, no matter who, no matter what. You and I cannot outsend the grace of God. Now, I'm not telling you to try, but you cannot outsend the grace of God because the grace of God has no bounds, it has no limits, no conditions, no exceptions, no exemptions. That's why we call it amazing grace, marvelous grace. It's a really big deal to talk about the grace of God. Now, if this isn't true, none of us have any hope. But if this is true, Anybody and everybody has hope and can have hope regardless of their story, regardless of their past, regardless of their present, regardless of what happens in the future. But this, this brings us back to the question, if God's grace is so amazing and God's grace is so marvelous and if this is really true, then why do so many believers, so many followers of Jesus, so many church people struggle with guilt and with shame, because that's really the heart of the question. Now, I don't have time to talk about it, but guilt can be a good thing, right? Guilt can be a good thing, but guilt can be a bad thing. Guilt can be pathological. Guilt obsesses about what I did. That's what guilt does. What did I do? What did I do? That's what I did. That's what I did. That's what I did. Guilt obsesses about what I did. Shame, however, loves to come along and feed off of guilt, and shame says, what I did is who I am. That's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, that's what I did. Shame says, that's who I am. Guilt says, hey, you did something horrible. Shame says, you are horrible. Guilt says, hey, you failed. Shame says, you're a failure. Guilt says, hey, I did something that wasn't good. Shame comes along and says, I'm no good. 
And so there's a lot of Christians, they've been in church their whole life for decades and decades and decades and decades, and they've, they've run down to every altar, you know, in every church, in their community. They've prayed, I don't know how many prayers. They've made, I don't know how many rededications. You know, they've prayed publicly, they've prayed privately, but they still just can't let go. And it's not that they can't let go of all of their sins. There tends to be one, two, three, four, half a dozen. There only tends to be a few that they just can't let go of. It's not like we go through life and hold on to everything we did wrong. And it's not like we go through life and hold on to all of our sins, but we usually hold on to one or two. And so people pray and pray and pray and pray and momentarily they feel a little bit different and they'll run down to the altar and they'll pray and pray and pray and pray and, and they'll sign a card and some they just go ahead and get baptized again and, you know, or they'll take communion and, and they'll do all of these things, these exercises to, to try to, to let go, to try to feel as though they've let go, but yet they still carry it around. And because they can't let go, and because you can't let go, and because I can't let go sometimes, we assume that God hasn't let go. We, we assume that God in some ways is still holding it against us, as though there's something that we need to do in order to, to get over it, to get beyond it. There's, there's some penance we need to pay. There's, some, there's something additional we have to do in order to be able to shake this thing off, to be able to make it be as though it, it never happened. And all the while, God seems to be more and more distance. That's the way guilt, that's the way shame works. Lewis Mead, he said this about guilt and shame. He said, guilt and shame, it's a vague, undefined heaviness that presses on our spirit. It dampens our gratitude for the goodness of life, slackens the free flow of joy. Guilt and shame seeps into and discolors all of our other feelings, primarily about ourselves, but also almost about everyone and everything else in our life as well. Guilt and shame is a terrible way to live. Your faith was never meant to be shackled by guilt and shame. But yet for so many Christians, that seems to be the case. Now, we don't like to talk about it, but push comes to shove. You've been there. Maybe you're there now. Maybe sometime in the future you will be. So what are we to do? How do we get past guilt and shame? How do we unshackle our faith from guilt and shame? I want us to think about a man that we all have probably heard about. I want us to revisit his story. And many of you, you already know his story and you could probably tell it better than I can. But I want us to revisit the story of a man who did some things that he shouldn't have done and he said some things he shouldn't have said and he had some stories that he wished he couldn't tell, but he could tell. He had lots of regrets, but let me tell you about this guy. He didn't let his past destroy him. He didn't let some sins that he refused to hold on to destroy him. He moved past his past. And when he moved past his past, he discovered that God had an incredible future waiting for him. And of course, I'm talking about a guy by the name of Peter or Simon Peter or just Simon. Uh, many of you, you, you know a lot of his story. Maybe you know all of his story, but he's a tough guy. He's a leader. Uh, he's a guy like some of you. He had very high standards. No one was going to expect more from Peter and out of Peter than Peter would expect of himself. I mean, he was just that type of guy. Uh, his story actually begins with another great giant of the New Testament, a guy by the name of John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer, who's referred to as the forerunner of Jesus, 
John the baptizer was preaching in the Jordan River Basin one day, and of course, many of you have heard this story as well. John looked up and saw his cousin Jesus walking along the shore of the Jordan River, and John speaks up and he says these words, Behold the Lamb of God. And everybody, you know, the, you could just hear everybody's head turning, and you know, maybe two or 3,000 people had come from Jerusalem. They were coming out there to listen to John preach day in and day out because John was a revolutionary person in and of himself. He, he was rejecting the establishment, and so the establishment couldn't stand him. And because the establishment couldn't stand him, a lot of people just naturally loved him because they couldn't stand the establishment. And so there were just thousands of people out there. And, and John points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away, that takes away, that takes away the sins of the world. And so two of John's disciples heard what John said, and they decided as a result of what John said to follow Jesus. One of those disciples that heard John and decided to follow Jesus that day was Peter's brother. And so this is where we pick up the story. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought his brother to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. But from here on out, you're going to be called Cephas. Or when that is translated, you're going to be called Peter. Now, this is really interesting. I, when I read the scriptures, I try to imagine what's happening. And I, I, I overlay my own personality sometimes and my own experiences just like you would in, in a situation where you're trying to imagine what something must have been like. When I think about this moment where Andrew basically, I, I think, probably coerced Peter, you know, Simon to go meet Jesus. I, I can only imagine that Peter, knowing what I know about his personality, he was probably a bit skeptical uh, about what Andrew was trying to get him to do because Peter was probably probably already thinking that Andrew had jumped the shark a little bit. He's been out there hanging out with John the Baptist. He's out there hanging out with the guy who's dressed up. He's dressed weird. He eats weird food, and everybody's talking about his message. Kind of controversial. Maybe, maybe his brothers got sucked into a cult, and he's probably had all of these thoughts. And then Andrew shows up one day and says, hey, I need you to come because the Messiah has arrived. The one that the Old Testament has predicted for thousands of years, generation upon generation upon generation of promises. We found him. I found him. <laughs> I can only imagine that Simon Peter was like, sweet brother, I'm so sorry. And he just stays on him and stays on him and stays on him. And he goes and he meets Jesus. And, and like out of, the, out of the gate, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, your name's Simon, but I'm changing it. It's like, what? You're changing my name? We just met. Yeah, I'm changing your name. I'm going to call you Peter. And Peter means steadfast, strong, strong as a rock. Now, basically what Jesus was saying, it was like a compliment, but it was kind of wrapped in an insult. Hey, Peter, you're not strong. You're not stable. You're not steadfast. You're not a rock, but one day you will be. And Peter doesn't know whether to feel bad or feel good. He probably felt a little bit of both. But Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I, I see some potential in you. And your name's Simon, but there's something in you. And you're going to be strong, and you're going to be steadfast. You're going to be a rock. And that was the first time that Simon, now called Peter, met Jesus. Now, a few days go by, and we're told in another passage of Scripture that Andrew and Peter, they go fishing, and they go fishing with two other guys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so they're out there. They've been fishing all night. And as the story goes, they didn't catch anything. 
And so they've come back into the shore and they're cleaning their nets because that's what you did at the end of a night of fishing. But they have nothing to show for their night of fishing and they're frustrated and they're tired and they're irritated. And all of a sudden while they're cleaning their nets, this net that's reminding them that they caught no fish, the fish which served as their livelihood. And so, you know, it's just salt in the wound. They're cleaning their nets and all of a sudden Jesus shows up again. And it's just been a couple of days since Peter's first meeting with Jesus and Jesus shows up with a crowd of people, and Jesus walks up to Peter and says, hey, can I borrow your boat? And Peter probably didn't want to, but he let Jesus borrow his boat. And so Jesus got in the boat with Peter, and he pushed a little bit off the shore, and Jesus began to teach the crowd back on the shore. And so Peter's having to listen to this entire sermon that Jesus is preaching. At the end of the sermon, Jesus, knowing that they caught no fish the night before, Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, I want you to do me a favor. Why don't you put your nets out into the deep? Well, any fisherman in that day knew that at that time of day, you didn't fish for the fish in the deep. You, you fish for them in the shallow, but Jesus was telling him to do something that was completely nonsensical. But Peter, for whatever reason, Peter decided to do what Jesus asked him to do. And when he dropped his nets into the deep, the nets were so filled with fish that the, that the boat almost started to sink. And they had to actually bring in reinforcements, some help from the shore to actually get the net full of fish into the boat. And so that was the first time that Jesus and Peter really had an interaction with each other. Yeah, they had met and he changed his name, but it seemed short and sweet. And it seemed kind of matter of fact, but, but this is like the meeting that really impacted Peter because this is when Jesus looked at him and said, come, follow me. And I'm going to send you out and I'm going to help you fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him, Andrew and Simon Peter, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And that's James and John. So James and John, Andrew and Peter, they start following Jesus then and there. And if that had happened to you, you probably would have as well. But this was the beginning of Simon Peter's adventure as a follower of Jesus. He didn't know he was going to be an apostle. He, he didn't know what really you know, was in the future for him. But this is, this is the beginning of him following Jesus. He becomes the voice of the disciples. He, he really becomes the leader among the 12. He, he's a natural born leader. He, he walks into the room and people, they kind of look at him to see what he's going to do. They wait for him to speak. He, he's just that guy. He's impulsive. He's opinionated, but he's highly inconsistent, highly inconsistent. Now, I don't know if you consider yourself a consistent person or not, but for those of us who feel as, as if we are inconsistent a lot of the times, that is so frustrating. Simon Peter, he was such an inconsistent person. One minute he's walking on the water. The next minute he takes his eyes off and he's starting to sink. One minute he gets the right answer and says, hey, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, hey, did y'all hear that? Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of death will not prevail against it. And then the next minute, Jesus calls Peter Satan and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, it's like one great moment followed by one terrible moment. And that was kind of the way that he lived his life. He was part of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. That means he saw things that, you know, the other disciples didn't see. He heard things that the other disciples didn't hear. He had a front row seat for the miracles, a front row seat to all the sermons. That, that was Simon Peter. And so he follows Jesus around through Jesus' earthly ministry. And he has one defining moment after the other. One of the great moments in Peter's life came in the upper room. Shortly before Jesus was going to be betrayed and shortly before he was going to be arrested and crucified, he took his disciples to the upper room to celebrate Passover. Maybe you remember the story. And there he's going to give them a very lengthy, a very emotional goodbye. 
And he's going to tell them things like this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you because greater love has no one than this, than a person who will lay down their life for someone else. It's going to be in the upper room that Jesus takes off his robe and Jesus takes a towel and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. But when he came to Peter, Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. I don't want you... There is no way, Jesus, I'm going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus basically said to him, well, if you don't let me, you know, wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And then Peter was like, okay, just wash me all over then. Wash me all over. And that's kind of how he lived. He would say one just boneheaded thing, and he'd get corrected, and then he'd be like, okay, okay, I'm in. Let me, let me make it right. And so there he was in the upper room, and Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, and Jesus is saying this long goodbye. And there Peter is along with the other disciples and they don't fully grasp what's happening in this moment. But Jesus starts talking and Jesus says, hey guys, I want you to know that where I'm about to go, you can't go. What I'm about to do, you can't do. And, and Peter, he's listening to this and he's like, well, what the heck are you talking about? Wherever you're going, I'm going. Whatever you're doing, I'm doing. He says, well, where are you going? And Jesus is trying to tell them that, hey, you can't go there. And he, he's trying to tell them about the cross without telling, telling them about the cross. He's already told them about the cross two or three different times, and they just never listen. They just never get it. He says, where I'm going, you can't go. And then Peter, he says, wherever you go, I'm going. If I have to be arrested, I'll be arrested. If I have to die for you, I'll die for you. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Whatever you're doing, I'm doing you know what I think about Peter? I think he meant it. I think he believed it. I, I think that he absolutely felt that. I, I feel like it was in his gut. It was in his heart. I'm going with you. And then there in front of all the others, Jesus said, listen to this. Jesus answered him. He says, will you really lay down your life for me? Now, I, I, think about this. He's in front of all of his peers. He's in front of all of his friends. I mean, here, this, is, this is a guy with a lot of pride. This is a guy with a lot of confidence. This is a strong man. This is an outspoken, opinionated leader. Will you really do that, Peter? Really? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus looked at him and said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now think about, think about how those words Think about how much those words hurt. Think about the sting of those words. That in front of all of your friends, in front of all of your peers, in front of the people that you feel as though you are leading, Jesus looks at you and says, are you really going to die for me? Peter, you think you will, but you won't. You think you're willing, but you're not. Matter of fact, before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I, I think about this all the time. How did Peter respond in that moment? Did he laugh it off? Did he, did he get a little angry? You know, did, did he just kind of fold his arms over there and kind of pout for a moment? Did he just ignore it? How did he respond in that moment? They leave the upper room and they go to the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, he takes his disciples and he takes specifically his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them into the garden. He says, I want you to pray with me. And really, he was saying, I want you to pray for me. Jesus was full of anxiety. He was, had all of these emotions, knowing what was about to happen in the hours to come. And so Peter, James, and John, they sit down. Maybe they started to pray. Jesus goes a little bit further. And what happens? They fall asleep. They fall asleep. In a moment where their friend is so anxious, 
that his sweat has turned to drops of blood. And Peter, he falls asleep. I mean, who falls asleep when their best friend says, I'm about to die, I'm going to be put to death, I'm going to be betrayed, all the things that Jesus has said. Who falls asleep in that moment? Who does that? Who's so self-consumed? Who's so tired? Who's so disengaged that they fall asleep when their best friend says, pray for me, pray for me, pray with me, watch and pray with me. But they fell asleep. The temple guards show up. They arrest Jesus. Peter wakes up long enough to grab his sword. He swings, cuts an ear off. You know, it's just kind of how he was. But then he was jarred emotionally. He was afraid. They take Jesus off and he goes into crisis management. He protects himself and he begins to insulate himself and he begins to protect himself and he follows the crowd that has Jesus at a distance. They go to the courtyard where Jesus is going to be experiencing some trials. They go to the courtyard of Caiaphas and and of course, as you've heard this story before, a young girl comes up to him and says, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, no, I'm not a follower of his. I don't know him. And then another person comes up to him and says, yeah, but I think you've been following that Galilean around, that Jesus guy. I think you've been, you're one of his followers. And he's like, no, no, I'm not. You've got me mixed up. I don't know the guy. And then finally, a third person says, you're a Galilean. You are one of his followers. And then he cursed Jesus and said, I don't know him. And then he heard the rooster. And then he remembered the words of Jesus. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. So here would be my question to you. Have you ever been there? Can you remember that time that you went out and you wept bitterly? It may have happened in the moment. It may have happened weeks later. It may have happened months later. It may have happened years later. But when it finally dawned on you, when you felt the weight of what you did, what you said, you went out and you wept bitterly. This is the part of the story that Peter wishes that he could never tell again. This is the thing that if he was an editor, he would have edited it out. He would have changed the story. If he could have gone back a moment before, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have changed how he responded. I have no doubt. I also have no doubt that this is the beginning of some of the worst moments in his life. I have no doubt that this, in this moment, it became the greatest regret of his life. He can't change it. He can't undo it. He can't can't alter it. It is what it is. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Why did he weep bitterly? He disappointed Jesus. But even if he hadn't disappointed Jesus, he disappointed himself. And he disappointed the others. It's a bad moment. It's a bad place. Some of you know that place. Some of you have really never left that place. You've stopped weeping, but you still feel that emotion. Jesus is put through a series of trials, and Jesus is whipped, and Jesus is beaten, and Jesus is nailed to the cross. Now, we don't think that Peter was there. We know that John was there. We know that Mary was there. We know that some of the others were there, but we don't think that Peter was there. I don't think that we can say dogmatically that Peter wasn't there. Maybe he was still observing from a distance. 
but he knew what was going on. He had enough access. He had enough friends in the know. He knew what was happening. And he knew that Jesus was being put to death. And when Jesus took his last breath, if Peter wasn't there, it didn't take long for him to get the news that Jesus was dead. And those really bad moments that night when he heard the rooster just got turned up to an entirely different level. It's worse than that because now everything felt irreversibly, hopelessly final. Irreversibly, hopelessly final. He had failed. It was public. Jesus was dead. He couldn't say, I'm sorry. He couldn't take it back. He, he couldn't change the situation. He couldn't change the circumstances. His heart was broke. And you want to talk about guilt and shame. I don't think we can imagine the guilt and shame, the regret, the emotions that Peter feels during this particular time of his life. Jesus is dead. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they, bought, they buried the body of Jesus. And for everybody, it felt final. It felt over. But then came Easter Sunday. And the gospels say that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women went to the tomb. And they found the tomb empty. They went back to find the disciples and they told them that the tomb was empty and that an angel had appeared to them and said that Jesus was not dead, but he was now alive. Peter and John, they run to the tomb. John believes. Peter is slow to believe. His heart's broke. When your heart's broke, it's, it's hard to believe what you need to believe sometimes. Sometimes when your heart's broke, it's hard to believe what is true because reality doesn't always feel real. And there's a moment here where reality was that Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. But Peter, he doesn't feel that way. But we're told in the gospel of Mark, because Mark got his information from Peter, we're told an interesting thing that one of the angels said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell Peter, make sure Peter, somebody find Peter and let him know that Jesus is alive because Peter is in a really bad place. Peter goes fishing. He takes some of his friends with him. And while he's out there fishing, Jesus comes walking along the seashore. And he asked them the question, have you called anything? And Peter knew the voice that he heard from the shore. And he jumped in the water and he swam over to Jesus. And I can only imagine what it was like in that moment. They had breakfast together. And then after they had breakfast together, Jesus and Peter, they take a walk. And Jesus, of course, he looks at Peter. You've heard this before. He looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, I got a question for you. Do you love me? And Jesus, Peter says, oh, yeah, I love you. He says, okay, then go do this for me. Hey, do you love me? And then he asked him a third time, do you love me? And this is what we refer to as the restoration of Peter. But what's interesting about the whole thing is that Jesus doesn't say, Peter, there's anything for you to do to make this right. There's nothing you have to do to make this right. There's no penalty that you have to pay. And the reason that Jesus didn't have to say any of those things because Jesus had paid the penalty. And that Jesus had done everything that was necessary for Peter to be right with him. Because Peter was a sinner 
And Jesus had died for all of Simon Peter's sins. Peter, there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you can do. And in that moment, guilt gave way to grace. Failure gave way to forgiveness. And in a few weeks' time, Peter's going to stand up on the day of Pentecost and he's going to preach the first Christian sermon of the church. If he had given way to guilt and shame, he would have missed the future that God had for him. Peter teaches us all that failure isn't final. Matter of fact, those who fail the worst, God may end up using the most. You've seen that happen. Some of you, you've experienced that. So what what does Peter teach us? Here's what I think he teaches us. This is what we should do. Own your story. Tell your story of guilt in light of his story of grace. If you want to move past guilt and shame, own your story. Hey, I'm a sinner. I'm a really bad sinner. I've done some things I'm ashamed of. I've done some things I'm embarrassed about. I've, I've done some things. I've got some stories I wish I couldn't tell. Hey, that's my story. I'm a sinner. I've got lots of sin. And then tell your story of guilt in light of his story of grace. And as you talk about how great his grace is, your sin is not gonna seem that great anymore. The bigger you make his grace, the smaller your sin is gonna seem in comparison to his grace. And you may not feel forgiven, but you will begin to trust that you are forgiven. You're gonna begin to believe that you are forgiven, even when your feelings don't feel forgiven. If the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is true, What feels final isn't final. What feels irreversible isn't irreversible. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus came back from the dead, that means that you are not defined by your worst moment. You are not defined by your sin. If the resurrection is real, it means that your sins have been blotted out. It means your sins have been taken away. It it means that your sins are remembered no more. It means that God doesn't hold your sin against you anymore. If the resurrection is true, it means that he died for every single one of your sins. He covered them. He removed them. He cast them into this area where he does not even think about them anymore. He doesn't keep score. He keeps no record as far as the east is from the west. He has taken them away from you. If the resurrection is true, all of those things are true. So why would I and why would you hold on to what God has taken away? Why would you refuse to forgive you when God has forgiven you? Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is trusting despite your feeling. The resurrection of Jesus means that your story of disgrace can become his story of grace. Because Jesus came back from the dead, that means you can come back from any sin. Because Jesus overcame death, that means that you can overcome guilt and shame. It means that you can move past your past into a future that God has prepared for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful for grace. God, sometimes we we hear about grace and we sing about grace and we become immune how beautiful this story is and how emotionally moving the story of grace is. God, I pray that we'll just sit under the weight of the truth that we're all sinners and you died for every sinner and you died for every sin that sinners would ever commit. 
and that your grace is always greater than our guilt. Your grace is always greater than our sin. And because of your life and because of your death and because of your resurrection, our failure isn't final. Our destiny is not shaped by our past. There is forgiveness and there is freedom from our own stories as our stories become your story of grace. So God, I pray that if anybody is struggling with guilt and shame over something that happened yesterday, last month, last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, I pray today that they would let it go. Remind them that you have taken it away and that they need to let it go. God, help us to forgive ourselves even, even as you have forgiven us. God, help us to trust that we are forgiven completely, fully, freely, forever. Help us to trust that, even though sometimes it's difficult to feel that. Help us to look into an empty tomb, to be reminded that we are part of a story of grace. And when our, when our guilt comes up against your grace, your grace wins every single time. In Jesus' name, amen. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, if there's something you need to let go of today, let go of it. If there's something you need to forgive yourself of, forgive yourself as Jesus has forgiven you. Father, speak to our hearts now.